We are starting off the year together, just uh, seeking to learn from Jesus how to pray like Jesus. And we are not the first ones to desire that or, or to ask for that. And as we started this series a couple of weeks ago, we, we took note of the fact that uh, the disciples who had walked with Jesus had seen him do so many things, of all the things they could have asked him to teach them. We have the record in the gospel of them specifically asking them to teach them to pray. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And that's really what we're asking God to do in this series. God, teach us how to pray. And not only the Sunday morning teaching environments, but the, uh, the book that I hope you've had an opportunity to pick up and, and to be working through and just to, just to lay ourselves, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like we've never prayed before. And in answer to that request, in uh, Luke 11 and uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gave to them what we most commonly call uh, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. And whenever I think of the Lord's Prayer, it always takes me back to, to high school sports. And uh, in a small town in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia in a different era, I guess this was all still uh, legal and above board and nobody uh, complained. But uh, every time when we would get ready, we'd be in the locker room getting ready to go out for, uh, for a game. And you You've had the warm-ups, you're back in the locker room doing these last-minute things, and there's all the, the speeches and all that, and then there would be that moment where we'd say, let's pray, and somebody would, would start off the, the phrase, and everybody would, would kind of mumble out in unison, our Father who art in heaven, and we would kind of by rote go through the Lord's Prayer, and then after the amen, everybody would jump up and let's kill him! you know, and it just always kind of seemed odd, you know, we're, we're in this, this moment of, of so-called prayer, and, and then we jump up, we're going to kill them and rip them apart, and let's go get them, all these things, and I, and I guess out of that experience and a lot of others, I've become convinced that this, what we call the Lord's Prayer, was never really intended by God for us just to, to repeat almost as a meaningless repetition. Uh, but it is, I think, more properly called a, a model prayer, a model for us to, to learn from, to, to build upon, to adapt, and to, to put into use in our communication with uh, the Father. And we come to the God who has revealed himself to us, the God who is both infinite and personal. And Pat taught on uh, that last week as he talked about uh, God as, as our Father, our Father who art in heaven, this, this art in heaven, this infinite God, and yet who is personal enough to invite us to call out to him as Abba, Father. The, David knew that. The Lord, this infinite one, is my shepherd, this highly personal one. Isaiah gives kind of a, a, a broader brushstroke description of that. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, infinite, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, personal. 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And what we learn is that we, we talked about this in the, in the opening message about what it means to pray in Jesus' name is that we can come before God in prayer with a boldness, but never, ever, ever, ever with an arrogance or a presumption. Because we come in the name of Jesus. We come claiming the merit of Jesus. We come because it was made possible by the shed blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, a holy boldness to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that we recognize that, that our access is coming in Jesus' name because of what Jesus has done, claiming his merit more than our own. And so as those disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he, he reminded them that they're addressing the one who is infinite and yet is highly, highly personal. And then he gives to them this model prayer. Uh, this disciple's prayer, it perhaps more appropriately could be called. And there's a couple things that I just want just to, to see uh, on the front end. And, and in doing so, it may just uh, help to remind us of those words. Matthew's gospel records it this way in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I want you to see some things there uh, just, just in broad brush strokes. The first of all is the community aspect of this prayer. Uh, the hour is plural, uh, and it reminds us that, yes, we have the incredible privilege of praying individually, but prayer was never designed by God to be solely a solo sport. <laughs> Uh, that it was to be done in community. It was joining our hearts and our minds and our, our, our words and our petitions uh, in community with one another. And as you go through this Sermon on the Mount, uh, a lot of the moral imperatives are, are, are he uses singular. But when he gets to this prayer, he, he uses these plural words. He talks about our Father and uh, give us our daily bread, forgive our debts, lead us not into temptation. There is this community aspect. There is this hour. There are, as many have noted through the years, kind of two major sections of three petitions each. Two sections of three petitions each. The first uh, set of petitions really focus upon God. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And so that, that Jesus, one of the things he's reminding us of it is that is always the appropriate place to start with God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. And then uh, the next three petitions are about our, our provision, our forgiveness, and our holiness. And we're going to uh, kind of walk through these petitions in the remaining time that we have in this series of messages. And what I want to begin with this morning is this first petition in this model prayer. The first petition there in Matthew 6, 9 hallowed be your name, or perhaps you memorized it, hallowed be thy name. 
But what does that mean exactly? I mean, hallow is not a word that we use very often. My guess is that probably most of us went the whole week without uh, striking up in conversation the word hallowed, right? Uh, Hallow means to respect, to revere, to honor, to value, to praise, to adore. And I don't know when when you hear the word hallow, certainly we think of the Lord's Prayer, but uh, maybe for us as as citizens of the United States, we may think of another famous speech where hallow was used. It was used in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And you remember that, that short and yet very powerful words, four score. And seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, and then his phrasing. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. He recognized that there was a sense that they were coming in that moment to to respect, to revere, to honor, to praise, to value the contribution of those men. And yet at the same time, what they had done had, had already kind of set that apart by, by their actions. And so it was a recognition. The hallowing was, was a recognition of respect and, and reverence of, of what had been done. And in much the same way, this, this first petition of the Lord's Prayer is a call to, to, to respect uh, God and who he is. Uh, the psalmist put it this way, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory Glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness that we are, we are called to, to respect and honor, revere, to value. But what, it, what does it mean when to talk about to, to glory do his name, to, to ascribe that worth to his name? Well, name was, was not just a label. Uh, but name, particularly as it used in Scripture, uh, is about the character. It's a reflection of the character of the person. It may also include one's reputation, but, but name has a, a whole lot more meaning in Scripture than maybe it has uh, for us today. One writer put it this way, God's name is synonymous with his person, his presence, and his power. And it is therefore held in the highest honor. That it's not just about valuing a label, but it is valuing the person, the personhood of God, his presence, his power, 
And because of who he is, he is to be held in the highest of honor. The psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not that he trusted in the label. He trusted in the character, in the personhood, in the, in the power, in the, of the presence of God. And so when Jesus talked about the name of the Father as he was crying out uh, in that pr- uh, high priestly prayer in John 17, he said to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He didn't just say, I I gave them the right label to use. No. He said, I I made manifest, I made clear in who I was as I walked among the people, who you were, your character, your personhood, your presence, your power. I manifested that. I made that clear. And so as you come to Scripture, one of the things that you find as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the New Testament, is that in in one sense there are many names of God. And there are different names that God used throughout Scripture to reveal different aspects of his character and his relationship to his people. And it's not that it's not that the writers were schizophrenic and they just couldn't settle on one name, but there was no one name, no one label uh, that could totally capture uh, the character and the personhood of the greatness of our God. And so you come and as as you read the scriptures, you you come across uh, so many names and uh, some have documented a hundred plus different names attributed to God in scripture. We won't go through all of them, but he is is, uh, El Shaddai, the the almighty God. Uh, Yahweh was that that name that was that that covenant name. He is the, the exalted one, the God of eternity, the God of the covenant, the God who sees me, or the God of vision. He is the Yahweh, the Lord who will provide. Uh, Yahweh uh, combined with other words, particularly in the Old Testament, the Lord who is my banner, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord is peace, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who is my shepherd, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord who is there. On and on the words go. The uh, Lord, Adonai, is used uh, throughout Scripture and again, uh, oftentimes uh, compounded with others. He's called the Ancient of Days, symbolic titles, our rock, our refuge our fortress, our shield, our sun, our refiner. Sometimes he's called by political names. He's, he's our king. He's our judge. He's our shepherd. And as Pat did such a good job last week of reminding us, he revealed himself to us as the God who is our father. And, and even in that, he goes further and talks about father of mercies and father of lights and father of, of glory. And on and on. You think, why? Why all? All of these different names, because all of these names reveal something different about the character, about the person of God and our relationship to him. And so when we're called to hallow his name, it is to respect, revere, honor, to value 
to praise, to adore the, the person of God in all of its dimensions, to, to honor him, his character, and his person. And Jesus says, that's the place to begin in prayer. That's the first petition. That's what orients us to reality, to that which is most important. But on a practical level, what does that look like? Because again, we don't talk about hallowing very much. How do I hallow God's name? Well, if you can think with me this morning just in three broad categories. The first would be by thinking the right thoughts. By thinking the right thoughts about God. Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That there is this vital connection that we must, must continue uh, to have that, uh, to truth. That it cannot be separated. We cannot separate out the, the person of, of God and who God is. That, that truth must always be a part of our worship. And, and we cannot worship a God of our own making. We cannot serve a God of our own making. But it must be centered in truth. And so so the psalmist would pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, those things that I think and speak to myself and to others, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So how do I hallow his name? Well, discovering and believing truth about God demonstrates a reverence for him. That, that's why it is essential that I feed my mind with the truth of God's word, uh, that, that I focus upon truth, uh, that worship can be emotional, it can be well done, it can be all of these things, but if it's not grounded in truth, it does not honor God. I may speak of God, I may consider myself spiritual or religious or whatever it might be, but if it's not grounded in the reality, the truth about God, it does not honor him. And I hallow him as I set a priority in my life of discovering and believing the truth about God. God, you are so important you are of such worth that I can spend the rest of my life discovering and leaning into and trusting the truth about who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. I hollow him as I think right thoughts about him. I dishonor him when my thoughts are not reflective of the truth of who God is. And that thinking leads to our speaking. By speaking the right words about God. The psalmist we just read talked about, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That there is this, this continuing 
praise that is, is going to come. He's going to speak the right words. Psalm 138, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So the, the, the words that we use in speaking toward God or about God reveal a reverence, a hallowing, or lack thereof that we have for him. Now let me lean into this for just a moment. I know that sometimes we can say things that maybe we don't mean totally to be disrespectful, but to step back and think about them against the greatness of our God, you have to wonder, does it really honor and hallow him does it honor him in my thinking does it honor him in the in the ears and the minds of people who hear these things so i i'll honestly i get a little uncomfortable and i don't mean to pick on anybody here but uh, when, when somebody talks about uh the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs and we kind of have this picture of almost as you know, God is this, this kind of grandfatherly type figure. The good news is he has all of these almost infinite resources, but he's a little out of touch with reality. You know, that's, that's almost a, a blasphemy of the greatness of our God. Here's another implication of that. Even the songs that we sing, just because something has a catchy tune doesn't mean it worships God in a way that honors him. That the, the words that we sing have to be aligned. Are they, are they a true reflection of, of who God is, of who he has revealed himself to be? You know, many of us, uh, perhaps without knowing, have formed our, our thoughts about God, oftentimes by the songs that we've heard and we've sung through the years, that those things sometimes come reverberating in our brain in different moments along the way, and it shapes the way that we think about and the way that we think about God affects the way that we relate to God. And so I want to say, are my words of my mouth, are they honoring to you? Are they in aligned with the truth about who you are? By thinking the right thoughts, by speaking the right words, but I also hallow or revere his name, his character, his person by living the right way. By living the right way. The Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink, Paul said, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all in a way that, that would honor God, that would show a, a, a reverence for God, that would revere his name and his personhood. Live in such a way that when people watch the way that you live, they, they would see Jesus that I manifested your name? Am I rightly representing the character and the person of God in the way that I live? In fact, is Jesus kind of attacked, if you will, or at least got after uh, the, the folks that claim to be highly religious? They, they spoke all religious words, and yet there was something about their heart 
and the way that they lived. You hypocrites, he said. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's just stay with that singing for a minute. You know, you can sing all the right words. You can even give all the right answers in a small group Bible study. But how are you living? Are you living in a way that is an accurate reflection of the character of God? Now, let's admit, we all do that imperfectly, right? And we need God's forgiving grace, his sustaining grace, his motivating grace every single day of our lives. But is the direction of my life, is the way that I'm seeking to walk, imperfectly for sure, but by his enabling grace, is it more and more manifesting, make clear the character of God? You see, as a part of God's family, if I claim the name of Jesus Christ, Everything that we do, wherever we are, cast a reflection on him. Not just what you do on Sunday morning for an hour or two, but wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, as a member of God's family, what I do, what I say, the way that I do it, it all casts a reflection on him and it either represents him well or it misrepresents him to the world around me. The first petition, the first thing that Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. It's the first in order, but I think it was also the first in priority. Get this thing right first. Get this right first. And when this is right, other things will be in alignment. John Piper, writing about this first petition, puts it this way. My conclusion is that this petition is the main point of the prayer and that all the others are meant to serve this one. In other words, the structure of the prayer is not merely the last three petitions serve the first three, but that the first, the last five serve the first. So we hallow, we revere, we honor his name, his character, his person. And so when we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, it is so that his name would be honored. When I pray for him and his grace to provide for my daily bread, uh, for the forgiveness of my sin, for the enabling me to walk in holiness, all of those things are to point to and to honor his name. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, if If I were to rephrase the first part of the Lord's Prayer, I believe I would say, my Father in heaven, my first desire is that in everything you might have preeminence. That's a little different than the way most of us start out praying, isn't it? My first desire first in order and first in priority is that in everything you might have preeminence. 
or in the words of the psalmist we looked at even a couple weeks ago, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Oh God, in my life, in my successes, in my failures, in my triumphs, in my pain, in my opportunities, in my problems, may your name be honored. May you have preeminence. But here's the thing. <laughs> God is so gracious. When he is most honored, we said this a couple weeks ago, I am most blessed. When he is most honored, when he is preeminent, I am most blessed. When he who is, is the highest value is valued the most, I can properly evaluate everything else in my life. When he who is rightfully first place is given first place in my life, everything else falls into its proper place. When he is most honored, I am most blessed. But I want to make sure that we don't walk away with a misunderstanding. So let me try to give you a word picture to, to close this out. It's the picture of a telescope. A telescope doesn't change the nature of the planet or the star it's looking at, right? It's not that the, the planet in and of itself gets bigger because you now look at it through a high-powered telescope as opposed to just with the naked eye. No, but what the telescope does, it enables you to see things, to see a little more of the truth of what that planet or what that star, whatever it is that you're looking at, really does look like. How it is in reality. And that's kind of what it means to hallow his name. Whether, whether I hallow his name or not doesn't change the character of God. <laughs> It doesn't change who he is. Go back to, to, to Lincoln's words in that, in that Gettysburg address. He, he, he talked about that, that our words in many ways can't change what has happened here. All this ground we can only recognize, give reverence to, proper respect to what has already taken place on that ground. What do I do when I hallow his name? I pull out the telescope. And I see him and celebrate him a little more clearly for who he is. And by the way that I think and the way that I speak and the way that I live, I might be that telescope that can help other people see God just a little more clearly. And when he is most honored... I am most blessed. <laughs> to give him preeminence is not God on an ego trip. <laughs> it is an invitation to set your heart right, to put in the first place that which is worthy of first place, to value most that which is of the most value. 
And when he is put in first place, when it's his preeminence that we seek, then we discover the blessings that he designed for my life when he is in his proper place and then I can live in my proper place. Our Father, infinite and personal, who art in heaven, hallowed, honored, revered, valued, be your name. May you have preeminence in everything in my life. Let's go before him together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, thank you that we have this incredible privilege of entering into relationship with an extraordinary God. That the one who is infinite has invited us into this relationship that is the most intimate and the most personal of all. And Father, in in a world that seems to invite us increasingly to be focused on self, true life, true blessing is only found when we honor you most. The paradox of your kingdom is the more we seek you, the more we find life. And so, Father, as we ask you to teach us to pray, Lord, we ask you to teach us how to reverence, to hallow, to value your character, your person, who you are. Lord, teach us what it means to live life honoring you, your character, and your person above all. And as you just sit before the Lord for just a moment or two more.